1: Hey everyone, welcome to Bookish, the show where we ask you what's your story and what does it say about you. Today on the show I have a journalist and columnist who provides offbeat reporting and a unique perspective on major events. His popular TV column has been running on news.com.au for close to a decade and raises an eyebrow at some of the country's most ridiculous reality shows. His newspaper column can be read every week in the Sunday Telegraph and the Sunday Mail and he's now releasing his first novel, The Hemsworth Effect, a humorous look at the celebrification of Byron Bay. James Weir, a pleasure to have you on.
0: George, thanks for having me.
1: No worries. I nearly stumbled on celebrification even though I practiced it beforehand.
0: <laughs> yes, I know. I've got uh, I've got like so many people in the spell check department saying like you know that's not actually a word. And I'm like that's it doesn't matter. People if celebrification it's one of those things where it's like it doesn't even need to be a proper word. You say it and people know what it means. I also like tabloidification.
1: Tabloidification. That is so much uglier than celebrification. I'm going to put my foot down and say no, even though, yes, Absolutely it does the information not. across accurately. No, yes. that's horrible. Okay. Tabloidification.
0: Are you going to tabloidify me in this podcast, George? I feel like you're going to tabloidify me.
1: I don't even know. I don't know what it means. I thought I knew what tabloidification means and now you've thrown me. now. So, yes, I guess I am based on that. Dude. You wait, you're gonna be page three of the Daily Mail soon. Oh I don't know what that means. Is that the nude page? I don't know. The,
0: <laughs> the nude UK. page. Oh no. Was that the yeah. Star
1: Wars yeah, that was
0: one of those the like page. Yeah. One of those like UK tabloids. Yeah, they had the page three girls. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. that's what made everyone buy the newspaper like back in like the eighties and nineties in London. Yeah, yeah. Just yeah, like, let's
1: class it up. Let's, it's probably newspapers. Too much info, not enough titties. That's,
0: <laughs> yeah. you know, what it not enough babes. That's the worst part. Not a- <laughs> totally. We need to bring babes back to the news cycle.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, already, an interesting start to this show. I got to say, mm. <laughs> so, as we, as I mentioned, the thing you've done a lot of writing, columns, journalism, all that stuff, and I want to hear a lot about all this stuff as well as just culture in general from you. But I think we should start off with a book, and we'll jump around from there. So. You've had some trouble
0: <laughs> picking a book? I've had name? so much trouble. So, you know, at the beginning of this chat, before you started hitting record, I was getting very flustered because I was still reckoning with my choice, George, because I feel like the book that people bring to this podcast, it says so much about them. You know, it's kind of like when people ask you, when you go on a date with someone and you don't really know them and they say, oh, what kind of music are you into? And you can be the biggest music buff in the world as soon as someone says asked you that question it's like or everything just evaporates from your mind and you just you don't even know what music you like anymore
1: what music I want to look like I like.
0: I know, I know. It. What's what's going to make me sound really cool? And that's why, whenever you ask that question, you've always got to say, "What music are you into?" And don't try and make yourself sound cool. You've got to like kind of preface the question with that. And I feel it's like so intense. It's so intense, and it's so accusatory and that no i would trying. Try All right, no, no lying. lying. <laughs> exactly. It's so
1: intense.
0: It's, and I think you should do that to your guests. <laughs> like, don't don't try and make yourself sound awesome with your book choice. Okay. OK, um, so it is something
1: I was trying to tell the guests, though, because it is something which I think people can overthink it, which sounds like you've totally done.
0: I've got so many Internet tabs open um, here just because I've got so much to say, George. Um, yeah. And I'll just say what my options were before I settle on one of them, because you did say okay. that it, di- it doesn't need to be a novel. It can be anything. It can even be a kid's book or a book of poetry, yeah. if you want. Mm-hmm. You know, the things that were on my mind, they kind of they, you know, they run the gamut. There's um, The Dressmaker by Rosalie Hamm, great Australian novel, which I love. I think um, the reason why it's one of my faves and it's why it was in my options <laughs> to talk with you about it. I'm just going to give you the run-through. So are just you going to do it for me. all your books, though? This is a cop-out, no, all right? No, <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm not just... No, no, I'm not just <laughs> copping out by bringing five to the table. i are
1: But you can't do the dressmaker. I'll allow that. Okay. Yes. Yes. I'll just
0: say with the dressmaker, the reason is because there's not enough farce in novels, like farcical humor in sort of serious fiction or dramatic fiction. So I love when they bring farce to the table there. Mm -hmm. The other one was more modern. Today will be different. Maria Semple. Great. I love cynical characters. All those characters that people often in marketing meetings say, well, they're not very likable. I love when an unlikable character gets their time in the sun. Mm-hmm. The other one was a, a book of essays, Eve Babbitt, Slow Days, Fast Company, anything about LA and in that kind of period is just particularly coming into summer. It's just awesome. And I reread it um, every year. But the book that I settled on was one that I love. It's Sloan Crosley, the first book of essays called I Was Told There'd Be Cake. And I think pretty much just from the title that deserves its selection. I Was Told There'd Be Cake.
1: That's a great title. Yeah. See, because you had so many selections, I couldn't do any research this beforehand. So tell me a bit about uh, I Was Told There'd Be Cake.
0: It came out, oh gosh, maybe around 2009, 2010. And it was kind of on that cusp just before everyone was kind of writing their personal essays on the internet. You know, and it was still seen as a bit of a fine art. And mm-hmm. there was, you know, for years kind of like the people who were the gatekeepers of that kind of writing, particularly in book form, were your David Sedaris's of the world. It was kind of seen as a bit more of an old white man thing maybe, or the only mm-hmm. other women that you could kind of put in that category were your Eve Babbitts's or your Joan Didion's. But in terms of humorous essay writing and satire, it was seen as a bit of a guy's game, I think. And so to see this cool young 20-something girl living in New York who used to work in books publishing with a really great like sardonic wit and sense of humor she came out with this book of essays called I was told there'd be cake about what it was like being someone in their 20s on the dating scene it was before dating apps as well so it was just capturing this really cool period of young single life kind of in that period where you've just graduated uni and you're kind of in the first few years of your first job It was a modern take on what we saw with TV shows like Friends in the 90s or what Sex and the City, the original book of essays, was in the early 90s. So it really captured that great period of time. With technology, things just move so fast. Life will never be like that again. And so to be able to look back or to reread some of those stuff, I think... I think it's even probably one of those books where she even talks about like answering machine, maybe like they were still around answering machines on your phone or even just iPhones weren't a thing as well. So you were still using your Nokia and text messaging and things like that. I love it. I love it.
1: It blows my mind that two thousand nine, two thousand ten is now seen as like a retro thing to look back on.
0: (laughs) Okay, I'm glad you brought that up because I've just recently I'd been doing some writing on the social scene here in Sydney, just because it's thriving again after the two years of lockdowns, where all the sort of events and social scene had shut down, but everyone's sort of going back out and going into bars. So I've been sort of following a few of these kids around just to see what life's like for them on this (laughs) social scene, and George. I think it's so hilarious and almost just blatantly offensive that these early twenty-somethings—they're now their retro accessory is like the Sony CyberShot digital camera from the two thousands, and they actually buy them on eBay or from like secondhand stores because it's seen as like this cool aesthetic vintage accessory to be seen with an old school digital camera from the early two thousands.
1: That is, look, I mean, it's it's a look. I reckon it gets they're not wrong. It's a nice. Look it's a me. look. It's a look. Does it, does but it they, even have good quality photos though?
0: No, but this is. I said, why do you want it? And they said the effect that it put on the photos, and I was like, yeah, like bad quality photos. So that's the effect. Also, I'm pretty sure that's why millennials designed filters. They don't want to play the millennial digital game anymore, so they're going back to even Kodak oh, right, disposable right. cameras.
1: Well, I mean, like to be fair, there is a certain. Like, it's too easy on the phone almost. So, like, that, at least it forces a little bit. It makes it a bit more of a thing. So, I guess in that sense, it's uh, – I could see the benefits of it. Kind of right now, the Gen Zs and stuff, they're rejecting the most recent trend of making stuff easier. And, look, I think we are we all hate – we all hate the world and technology. So, this makes sense. I think we're all on board know, with this. <laughs> I
0: know. But then, then the more I spoke to them – because camcorders are also a thing. So, then down at Fashion Week, all these young kids were running around with, like, old school camcorders that they film – Uh, like and then they want to upload it to instagram they still want to use instagram not only do they want the rough and ready footage that you get with a camcorder and an old school digital camera but they also just want the photo of them holding the camcorder themselves (laughs) you know like it's it's an accessory Uh, (laughs) more than anything else it's an accessory
1: yeah look uh, it definitely sounds like something which won't last very long just because the photos are going to look too bad (laughs) they need to take photos
0: like what I was saying with then, I was told there'd be cake. It's so funny to look back at something that is still such a new, fresh, modern book. You know, technology has moved so fast, and you go, "Oh God, that wasn't long ago." But it sounds like it was like written light years away when you talk about <laughs> when you talk yeah. about texting back then.
1: Yeah, when you talk about like not everything being connected on social network to such a degree, like constantly yeah. uploading. I, I, I Instagram wouldn't have even been out by then. Jesus, <laughs> I know that's already come and gone now. All right. <laughs> So in relation to that though, so when did you read that the first time, that collection? of
0: I read that when I was in university or had just graduated university and I was trying to get a job in media, like as a journalist. And it was just after the financial crisis of 2007, Mm -hmm. 2008. And in all of our journalism classes, while we're paying these lecturers to teach us journalism, they're also telling us, well, you're probably not going to get a job. And- So none of us knew what to do, just reflecting on it now. I think that's something that I really probably enjoyed about I Was Told that Cake. It really came into my life probably when I needed it, when it was so hard to get a job where you want to work in journalism or media or as a writer and there's just absolutely no jobs going. And it was kind of this thing of if you don't laugh, you'll cry. And to approach it with this kind of like, world weariness or jadedness or cynicism that there's nothing you can do, but you're also not going to really save yourself from the trouble. I'm not going to go back and finish the law degree that I started for three weeks, George. So, you know, so it's kind of like, okay, well, we're just going to double down and we're going to commit. And I think that's a sense of humor that I really liked. You know, I was told there'd be cake because you're also reading about someone who's young and working in media and just sort of trying to get by or trying to get to that next stage or to figure out what they want to do while also having a life, but not being able to have a life because you live in an expensive city.
1: I love how like you, it's just completely relatable. Like you you read it at the exact time you needed it for your thing. And you're like, this is my, this is the best book. It speaks to me directly.
0: (laughs) And it was one of those books that I kind of read and it was like, oh, I want to write that. It wasn't even just like, hey, that was a good book. It was, oh, I want to write that book.
1: Mm, Yeah. That's always that inspo when you do writing to get that kind of hit where you're like, that's where I want to be. So that's always good to see. You did three weeks of the law degree, but like, were you always writing even as a kid? Like, was that kind of what you, was there a certain type of writing you were into?
0: It Definitely humour and anything that was offbeat and didn't take itself too seriously. I always hated the books that they would sort of thrust on you in primary school. I went to school in North Queensland and it was like this old Catholic school and they didn't buy new books. So we had these like really old ratty books from the 50s and they smelt and all the pages were like stained brown just from time. And like,
1: <laughs> hopefully just time,
0: Like, yeah. <laughs> absolutely no one wanted to read them. They weren't even known books, you know? Like, I think they just got them free. And- <laughs> like they weren't the classics it's not like i was like f scott fitzgerald i think he's a hack no thank you these were just nothing books and it really they really were not inspiring when you kind of get to that age it's also like musical movies where you start to realize your own taste and your own taste starts to develop and you can start identifying and making those choices of oh like that's something that i would like and you can see what the differences are and you can you know what you're going to gravitate towards and It's not only that you're able to identify that you like something, but you're able to identify why you like something, you know, and you're able to actually look at it with a little bit more of a critical eye and pick up those nuances. Yeah, I always liked things with a sense of humour. I mean, as a little kid, my favourite thing was the cat in the hat. I love absurdity and I I love farce. I love things that are kind of even making fun of itself or even maybe even sometimes at times making fun of the reader in a very kind of cute, innocent way. So that's why I love The Cat in the Hat. It's edgier than what people give it credit for. That's what I'm saying.
1: It's time for a reread. I didn't realize. Okay. (laughs) I think
0: it's time for a reread. And, yeah, and so, you know, I wasn't one of those kids that sat around, like, writing stories. But, you know, when I did have to write, I always liked writing with purpose. You know, I didn't just like writing for the sake of it. And it's kind of what I do now. It's like, it's about identifying the audience and exactly what you're doing. And what are the things that you need to hit? And what does this piece of work need to achieve? Because I always think those boundaries really enhance creativity. I always think you become less creative if you're just given like a whole blank page and just be like, you can do whatever you want. I like the rules and the structure around something.
1: Yeah. So now you're writing for a 23-year-old female who's done university and now is looking for work in the... Yeah. Publishing and you're like, yes, done. Now I can do it.
0: Done. Okay. That's, they're the beats that you need to hit. They're the criteria. And so when I was, you know, when you kind of get older and then you're at school when you're trying to do that stuff. Yeah. That's when I kind of really started to work on my skills. I think as a kid, like that's where you start getting the compliments from people, you know, teachers that you really like, and they'll pull you aside and they'll say, "That thing that you wrote was really good. Those compliments, although that feedback is a thing that makes you think, oh, okay, maybe, maybe I'm just going to keep doing it maybe I'm going to try a little bit harder at this and you start trying to impress them. And then that's when I kind of got to university and I, I was studying law while also studying journalism at the same time. And it became immediately clear, probably on the first day that law was not for me. I like arguing (laughs) But I don't like reading really big, boring textbooks. That's probably why, I mean, if you want a full circle moment, George, those big Lord textbooks probably reminded me of those ratty stained books from primary school from a million years ago. And I just, yeah. I my goodness, every time I sat down to like flip through them, I would just look out the window and think, I have got to get out of here. Like, how am I going to get out of this mess?
1: <laughs> I love it. You're like, I like arguing and not reading. So I'm going to go on social media. That's where I'll be.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no. See, social media still wasn't a thing when I was in university. Yeah, yeah. And even even then, I mean, I think I was probably in my late 20s when I finally got a Facebook. And that's because I had to for work. I'm not involved in social media, but even to the extent that I am now, I'm like, it's too much. It's too much.
1: Mm. Yeah, yeah, it's it's overwhelming. So these hidebound books that reminded you of this traumatic school's time. So you went into journalism instead. So was your focus there always to be like a cultural commentator or did you actually want to do, quote unquote, like more hard hitting stuff as well?
0: It was, I think the goal was to always work in the space of being a columnist in some capacity. The space of working as a columnist in media has really changed many times, even over the last 10 and 20 years. The thing that really wanted me to work in that space was growing up reading like newspaper columnists. My aunt was a newspaper columnist and it was such a cool job just to, you get given a page on a weekend and you can just kind of write about whatever you want. That's what I wanted to do. And then when I was studying journalism, that's what I really worked towards and tried to hone. You'd try to sort of work on your voice. Cause I think if you want, to be a columnist and you want to have that cut through you need to know what your personality is and what your voice is and how to write with personality you know it's almost like you want to develop your voice so much that when people read just the very very first sentence of something that you've written without even looking at the byline they know that it's you it's like Mm -hmm. when you're in the supermarket and you've never even heard the song before but you can just hear a bar of it and you know from the voice that that's Adele You know, like, and you don't even need to know the song. So that's kind of what I was really working hard on in developing in university. But I also kind of wanted to write news, but in a satirical way, which there weren't sort of many news websites at all. It was still kind of like it was seen back then. It was still... I make it sound like it was a million years ago. It wasn't, (laughs) but that's how fast the time moves. In that time, it was still seen as, oh, well, you study journalism and then you go work at a newspaper. It wasn't going to work at a website wasn't seen as something that you did. I mean, there certainly weren't personality-driven news websites where the news is kind of written in the voice of, of of the journalist. That wasn't a thing. And whenever I would try and do that, look, there were some lecturers that appreciated it. There were others that said it was just this news report is too chatty. This, or mm-hmm. this news report is too conversational. <laughs>
1: well, depending on the content as well, it could be a bit of a throw.
0: Yeah. I know. But I also liked perplexing people by doing that or even sort of borderline annoying them.
1: It's like, what's the deal with the Ukraine war? Seriously. Like, I know. It-
0: <laughs> I know. Or just pointing out like a weird thing and going like, well, you know, well, clearly this is the big headline today. And just finding something so peculiar and just doing it in a kind of very dry way where if people kind of have a sense of humor, they could identify that you were being funny. But people who take themselves a little bit too seriously, not only would they not enjoy it, they would get really riled by it. And it still happens now. Like it still happens now. I've been writing like a satire column in the Sunday paper for about five years now. And I still get handwritten letters from people who just didn't quite understand it was a joke. <laughs>
1: that's that's good. I think you'd be happy with that. Yeah that's that's nice mission accomplished
0: george mission accomplished
1: that's great that's that's a lot of fun so i guess one of the things i'm wondering so these columns you do this satirical stuff so uh, excuse me if i haven't read a whole bunch of them but from my look at it some of it was about like it was fairly youth oriented is that a fair call like i just saw some recent ones about like schoolies and stuff so
0: So you caught me this morning i've just flown back from byron bay i was up reporting on schoolies i've done schoolies many times. It's the second consecutive year for me in Byron Bay. Um, And it was distinctly different. This cohort of children, they weren't big partiers like they were last year. Like last year, there was like a police swarmed the street and a guy like jumped on the hood of the car. It was wild. But yeah, so with that kind of stuff, I wouldn't say that it's reporting for a youth audience, but it's reporting almost on youth or just modern culture. Mm. But for maybe for For the audience, (laughs) For the oldies, for people who aren't immediately in that group, you know, the people who are kind of maybe on the outside going, what school is in Byron Bay? What the hell happens there? And again, you kind of go in there and it's always trying to find that balance. If you want to report on, on something that's actually happening now and get that news line, get that news report. But you want to do it with a bit of a raised eyebrow and find the humor in it. You kind of teeter between reporting something that's happening in the moment, but doing it in a fun personality way and in a way that only you could do it as well. Mm. I mean, you don't want to get the same story that every other journal who goes to Byron Bay to report on school is, is going to get. You want to do it in a way that only you can. And that kind of goes back to what I was saying with if, you know, when someone reads the lead of a story that you've written, you want them to know like, ah, oh, I know exactly who wrote this.
1: Yeah, that can sometimes take a while to just refine that voice and find your own angle in it all, So, which you've been doing now for a long time. Uh, so you've mentioned Byron Bay, uh, so I guess that's probably – I'm interested because you're, the new book that you've written now, The Hemsworth Effect, which is your first novel, it's about Byron Bay and, as we said at the start, the uh, tabloidification. <laughs> <laughs> I'll give it a try. I'm trying it out.
0: George, uh, okay. It's, it sounded so natural coming out of your mouth. It just it it fell did. off the tongue. It,
1: yeah. Just bloid. It's just you. any word with bloid in it. I just, I don't know about it, but
0: <laughs> yeah. so
1: it seems like you've got a bit of, and maybe it's just the timing. Cause I'm seeing you write this thing now about Byron Bay and schools, but maybe have you got like a bit of an interest in Byron Bay? Was there anything that maybe made you look in that direction specifically?
0: I've got a bit of a history, maybe you could say with Byron Bay and reporting yeah. on it. And that's kind of what inspired the Hemsworth effect. It's a spinoff of a series of columns that I wrote over one summer last summer or the summer before. It was just after the pandemic, the, you know, the first round of lockdowns, borders were shut, uh, coming up to November, December, that time of year where everyone would usually fly out of the country and go to really fancy locations around the world and then annoy us all with their Instagram photos, you know, of them in Capri. But they they couldn't do that. So everyone was just flying to Byron because it had been in the the news so much. The Hemsworths were building that house they live in, known as Westfield Byron Bay. It was attracting all these other celebrities there who wanted to hang out with the Hemsworths, like his mate Matt Damon. A lot of movies during COVID, they couldn't film in Hollywood, so they were filming around the Byron hinterland region. It was a very versatile area. And then because of all of that, all the influences were going there as well. And you also had a lot of people from Sydney and Melbourne wanting to escape the lockdowns and do a bit of a tree change or a seat change, they were actually selling up and moving up and buying houses there. So it was this perfect storm, probably wrong choice of words, not a perfect storm, but a storm of Mm. just this swirl of change. And with any kind of change, you know, you can never really say whether it's good or bad, but I think with any change, it always brings up a lot of emotion. And it you know—it just naturally brings a lot of tension to an area. And that's really what I found. So I went and I spent a few weeks there. I don't live in Byron, but from what I observed and from what uh, people told me, it was probably just the most unusual and chaotic summer in the town's history, just because of this, the sheer amount of people going there. It was so busy that You know, they had the British backpackers in high viz with stop-go signs at all the streets just because there was that much road traffic and foot traffic and just, you know, it was like a music festival some days, just, you know, the amount of people on the street. And you talk to locals and there are... There are some that don't care, but then there are some that feel really passionately about it and they they hate the change and they don't like these new people coming just because they want to live the Instagram lifestyle and recreate the photos that they're seeing on social media. They're resentful of the celebrities, you know, and then there are some that had a mixture of all those feelings. But at the end of the day, they really just wanted to be able to live the life that they had been living there for a really long time, you know, and a lot of them who had grown up there. They had seen the change happening and nothing stays the same forever, but this change had become so drastic and so quickly. It was just overwhelming to them. And that's kind of what I wanted to do with the Hemsworth effect. I thought, I don't want to go and write a book about a town that's very, very easy to parody and very, very easy to stereotype. That Mm. would be too easy just to kind of rely on those stereotypes. I think, again, where that humour comes from with anything is when you're able to take a stereotype and put a spin on it or challenge it to make it even more surprising you know like if you've got this cast of stereotypical townsfolk how do you either take it further or how do you do something later on with these people that makes the reader go huh okay i thought wrong about this person and it's the same with the people in the book who come into town from the big cities the influencers and the you know and the rich people there's this one character called Beck who really is just a pain in the butt for our protagonist, Amy McGuire. And Amy just, oh, she can't stand her and she's making her life hell. But what we find throughout the book is Beck isn't the monster that Amy wishes she was because I think that's often a human behaviour for us. We decide that we don't want to like someone and the more that they try to challenge our hatred of them and prove otherwise, the more we hate them and the more we want to hate them because it's just, oh, you're making it impossible. Yeah. It's like,
1: oh, you had to be likable too, you piece of shit.
0: Yeah. I know. Stop <laughs> helping me. <laughs> yeah. I want to hate you. <laughs> so you're hating
1: him for being nice. Yeah. That's. <laughs> I know.
0: <laughs> that's very true. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once, it's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.
1: Actually, on that point, just quickly, uh, I think that's true just because it's always a classic thing about impersonations, things like that, and you see it a lot. I got background in comedy, and you see it a lot there where people, the lazy version of any stereotype is to just do the stereotype, or someone's the bad guy, and they're just the bad guy. And this can apply even in contentious stuff, let's say. So I won't give you yeah. details, but there's certain topics, which even now in liberal Melbourne, if you took that angle, people are going to be like, that's not right. That person's definitely bad always. And it's like, yes, that's true. People can be bad, but like you just by adding that depth, it's more real. And then like sometimes yeah. people can see that as, oh, you're justifying them or you're you're being too nice to that person. But it's like, that's, but that's just what they are. <laughs> it doesn't mean that their yeah. actions or the result of what they are is bad, but it doesn't mean that they're, fundamentally some caricature so and i think that can add more depth and usually by adding more depth to a character you're going to be getting more comedy out of them as well so you're going to be adding like everything totally to it, essentially
0: totally because i think when you do that when you add more depth what you're doing is you're adding more heart to not only the characters but to also the storyline and the thing is when you add more heart you add more vulnerability which makes those the highs higher and the lows lower and the comedy so much funnier because it's almost like sometimes when you see on Australia's Funniest Time videos or now on Instagram where a kid will, like, trip over while running. Now, I'm not saying that that's hilarious, but um, we all laugh out at it, George. <laughs> and, yeah,
1: like I'm saying it's definitely hilarious.
0: <laughs> totally, totally. There's this kind of innocence to it and, like, we care about this little kid running, but, oh, they fell, but it was still kind of funny. And that's kind of what I think you want to do with your characters then once you add that heart to them the more they get screwed over and the more you kind of set them up and knock them down, you feel more for them. But that comedy element, if you're writing a comedy, it adds that sort of nuance to make it more funnier. You know, it's kind of like you then can't help but giggle behind your hand and just go, oh my God, she's really getting screwed over here.
1: Mm. To go back to one of the first things you mentioned, one of the other books about farce and like what good farce is, the most cliche example is like Frasier as like, for us and it's like the best example of that and like that's again that's where character comes from because if you've got well-realized characters any situation they just have to quirk an eyebrow and you're pissing yourself already because you already know so much about them and what's going on so that just makes it you're so invested in them already
0: absolutely yeah you know their backstory and you know what pushes their buttons and so someone can even just come into a scene and say a word and you know that that word is going to piss off your protagonist just because of what you know about them. You know, mm. like you know the backstory to them.
1: Yeah, having that depth just uh, adds so many more layers to every single scene where you can like just draw more out of it from intensity point of view and comedy, I think. So it's nice to hear that you've taken that angle. So this ties in like, like we've been talking about, like your focus on kind of cultural events, this influencer style, and this celebrification, all this stuff but is just because you're saying that you've taken like quite a nice stance towards even the influencer side of things. You're seeing the human element in that. Is that something you've had like firsthand experience with, or is that just sitting on the outside and seeing that? Or?
0: I report a lot on influencers. I would say the book as a whole is very affectionate. There are some influencers in the book. Right, who, you don't have to
1: be nice to all of them.
0: I don't have to be <laughs> nice to all of them. It's not that I'm not nice, but I kind of present the, I mean, even with the influencers in the book, it might seem like I'm kind of just playing into the stereotype of them, but I report on influencers a lot. And I can tell you that it's pretty much just kind of quote unquote, what many of them say and do. And that's how I wanted to play it with a few of the influencers. I didn't want to water things down and I didn't want to avoid telling what I know to be true in some of those instances. So I kind of just did what I usually do in my reporting. You let them speak for themselves and then readers can draw their own conclusion. Yeah, <laughs> You give them enough rope and then they hang themselves.
1: Yeah, exactly. That's <laughs> And I'll be riding the ropes. Yeah. And related to that as well, and this is something which I because you get the most att- attraction on is uh, reality TV, and you're mm. commenting on it. Let's say, and you can taking obviously taking the
0: piss. You're allowed to say that, George. Okay, let's you're go allowed taking to say the that. taking
1: the Mickey. Yeah, <laughs> yeah taking the piss. And obviously that and influencers completely. Those are two things which completely line up with each other. Does it get tiring? From your point of view, writing about this stuff and seeing all this stuff all the time, is it something where you're like, oh, this is a bit, like I don't know, icky or like, oh, I don't want to, I'm so sick of this or anything like that?
0: You often, I think you do get sort of, I think what I would call content fatigue from it. The way I compare it is like, if you just went to the gym and you just worked out the same muscle every day, it's not going to be beneficial and you're just going to end up really hurting that muscle. Like you can get that feeling of just being so fatigued because- you can get into the pattern of just doing, you know, watching the same kinds of shows over and over, and having to find something new to say about them. But also, you can go through whole seasons of TV shows where the producers are just serving up the same stuff, not only as each other, but from what they've served up in years past. And so, you're always having to try and rack your brain of of go, uh, what's something that I haven't said about this style of moment, or what's something that I haven't said about this kind of controversy that we're seeing, like a cheating scandal. That element can become tedious, but it's also part of the challenge. I think there are some days where you just like sit down and watch a TV show and you just think, God, I cannot bear to watch another episode of this show at nine o'clock in the morning while sitting in my office chair, you know, (laughs) and then I storm around after watching it for the rest of the day. And then I'll often like open Google and start looking at new jobs and going, I've got to get out of this job. And then I'll be Googling things like podiatry weekend courses thinking like, maybe I can just do a weekend course in podiatry and like completely change professions. Mm -hmm. And turns out they don't offer weekend courses in podiatry. Yeah. It's like a three or four year course. Yeah. It's kind
1: of pretty serious. Yeah. And
0: that that seems more tedious than watching a reality show at nine in the morning while sitting in my office chair. So then I sit back down and I write the recap, but then as the sun sets, because it sometimes takes me that long as the sun sets and I file my piece, on a really good day, you can feel really satisfied just because you're like, oh, I finally found something new to say (laughs) that doesn't make my skin hurt.
1: Yeah, it's funny. (laughs) And that's actually got positive that it does work out the muscle in in an actual interesting way, trying to find those angles. I guess people have a mixed, uh, actually, I don't think it's really mixed about reality TV in general and that kind of thing. And that obviously lining up with, I guess, that world of influences and gossip and all that sort of thing. Do you feel like sometimes you need to... (laughs) What's the wording for stuff like that? You know, there's like high art and then there's low art and then there's the culture Mm. conversation stuff. So do you feel like you need to kind of wash your mouth out a little bit after doing that too much? You're like, I'm going to go watch a four-hour movie about a dude who's depressed in the dark ages or something. Yeah,
0: (laughs) yeah, yeah. yeah. I love documentaries. Sometimes you just need to blow out the cobwebs after being in that headspace for too long, like the whole kind of reality TV influencer thing. Mm. It's just go work out on the elliptical while blasting Janet Jackson. And then go home and see, I don't really watch any new TV shows. In The Hemsworth Effect, the main character watches a lot of reruns of Becca and Just Shoot Me on YouTube. And look, that was really just um, art imitating life, George. Uh, (laughs) That's how I spend a lot of my nights.
1: That's some hilarious, like late 90s sitcoms, which I have watched at the time as well. So I can remember those fondly. Becca and Just Shoot Me. Yeah. That's hilarious.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: Hey, Ted Danson, Becca was great. That was great. It was a good time.
0: Totally. It was a great show. Also, Nina Van Horn, the fashion editor in Just Shoot Me. I mean, I wanted to be Nina Van Horn. And, <laughs> yeah, that's how I escaped the world of reality TV. I think I'm in a, a pretty safe space because I don't take, you know, that kind of... What The stuff that I'm writing about, like with reality TV and influencers, it's not a space that I live in. It's not a space that I operate in. It's not something that I take too seriously. And I think that's always a good, if you're writing about a beat of any kind, is that you're kind of just standing on the sidelines of it. And that's really how I feel. In The Hemsworth Effect, that culture comes into it a lot because there's a reality show that comes into town, which, you know, coincidentally, after I started writing the book, Netflix announced that their reality show in Byron Bay was going to start filming there. So it was stuff like that would happen all the time. Like Netflix announces the reality show or I would write this ridiculous moment between some influencers. And I would think to myself, I'll probably just cut that later because it seems too unrealistic and no one will believe it. And then it ended up happening. That happened several times. It was crazy.
1: Yeah. Like you're seeing, yeah, well, this is the classic art imitating life parody. And then it's like almost it is yeah. as extreme as that. It's funny you saying that, though, when you mentioned beat, like as in I never actually thought about it like that. And that's actually a yeah. take.
0: It's the modern news beat.
1: Yeah, yeah. Like as in this is just the yeah. modern version of something which 30 years ago now people look back on and be like, oh, yeah, that was an interesting and cool thing. But now people are like, ugh, let's not talk about this. But it's like, actually, this is just the current version of that thing which yeah. people will look back on in an interested way.
0: Totally. The way I sort of describe it to people is the way people write about reality shows these days. Like every news organisation has someone on staff writing reality TV recaps and it's really just the new theatre review. You know, like back in the 1920s, 1930s New York, golden age of newspapers, people would buy it to read the the reviews of the latest theatre shows because that's what people would do for entertainment. Well, no one's going to the theatre these days, not once a week or several times a week. They're staying at home watching reality shows. So it's the modern day theatre review.
1: The a searing indictment of society. <laughs> in <general.
0: laughs> Look, if Dorothy Parker were alive today, I swear to God, she'd be writing reality TV recaps.
1: And that's the point I think people can sometimes miss, so it's very true. Your book of choice, which is about someone in their early 20s uh, navigating the world in that period of change. Also, the focus of what you write on, which seems to be about this kind of constantly changing, shifting society, societal stuff. And then the book you've written about it, which also includes where it is. It seems like that idea of change and whether it's good or bad kind of has a through line through everything you've kind of done it's an evergreen topic and something which is super fascinating too. I think we all experience that all the time. And you said you were actually brought up in, queensland and you got to see Mm -hmm. a place that maybe didn't change much at all for a very long time
0: right and now it has changed yeah
1: all right it has it's (laughs) it's got to modernize yeah they've got nates now
0: the mines come in see every town goes through something like that you know whether it's whether it's the celebrification or whether it's the minification Mm. from the mines there you go there's another variation of that word for you but you're right like it changes something that I think it's probably one of my favorite topics and it's probably one of my favorite themes change. There's also, it's spoken about in the book, this idea of letting go. And I think it's a very human reaction to not let things go, you know, and the more that someone either tries to take something away from you or the more that you're told to let go of something, the tighter you grip to it. There's this kind of feeling of insecurity that comes with it, comes with the idea of change and the unknown. It's spoken about in the book as well. Like one of them, everyone sort of around our main character of Amy McGuire is telling her that she needs to change and let go. And, and someone tells her, you just need to learn to let go of the plan because that's the thing through your teens and then your 20s and then your 30s and your 40s. It just never stops that you kind of make these plans and then you feel the need to commit to it and not veer away from it because it was the plan. And I decided it at one point, and so I mu- it must be right. The plans in people's lives—they're constantly evolving, and they're constantly changing based on the circumstances and the situations around you that you've got no control of. It changes every day, and they constantly need to be reevaluated. And just because something was right for you five years ago or ten years ago or last week, it doesn't mean that it's still necessarily right for you now. And that's a lesson that you kind of, or that you know, in the Hemsworth effect. That I really wanted to take Amy on this woman who just is doubling down on her desire to not change. And how do you change her? How do you kind of come in and, and make her kind of like stop white knuckling, whatever it is she's grabbing onto. And the way you do that is you need to go in you need to blow up her world. You know, you need to go in and you need to blow it up to the point where she's so uncomfortable and she thinks she's at the, just the basement of things are never going to get better, but then they do. You know, and that's mm. the only way that you're going to
1: get it to change. Yeah. I mean, and that's uh, it's a classic, uh, yeah, good device to unravel that as well. It's funny you're talking about change. I just kind of uh, thinking back to what you mentioned near the start where you're like, yeah, I studied journalism and even though everything was changing, I'm just holding on. I'm not changing. I'm sticking to this. Totally. I'm not
0: changing. <laughs> yeah. I was like, I'll be fine. I'll yeah. be fine. No one else can get a job. I'll, I don't care.
1: It's all right. I'm not going to change. I've made, my, I've made my plan.
0: I made my plan. I know. I just kept working at the Sunglass Hut and filing my book reviews for the Courier Mail. I was like, something will happen. It's fine.
1: So, yeah, it's more like do what I say, not what I do with this idea
0: I know. No, no, but it's, it's absolutely not that because then I did have to change. I did. Yeah, you
1: kind of had to well, – that's the thing, yeah, especially journalism in the late aughts. That's a – yeah, you would have been very much the forefront of letting go of ideas you had and
0: – Absolutely, because, you know, and again, it's about changing your perception and, and your idea of what you thought things would look like, you know, and to bring it back then, the dream job would be to be like a newspaper columnist. Well, that world changed. Like before I had even graduated university, that wasn't a possibility anymore. And, you know, you kind of, you can either double down until you just, I don't know, left kind of with nothing or you kind of adapt. And, you know, what I have been able to do now, I never watched reality TV before I started writing about reality TV for news.com.au. And in the end, that becomes kind of the modern day column. Mm. It's same, same, but different. It's kind of what you wanted to do, but what, you know, what you wanted to do doesn't exist anymore. So you may as well be doing this. Yeah. <laughs> it's the new version of it.
1: And was that like a conscious choice? Like to, to try to act and go into these new areas?
0: Um, no, no, it really, again, it was just that kind of learning to let go of the plan, you know, and you kind of just take what comes at you. Hmm. Yeah. You don't know what anything's going to go into. You kind of just, I don't know, take the opportunities as they come. And then when you see if you're having sort of certain success in that area, then you go, okay, maybe I'm just going to continue that. The night that Married at First Sight first premiered in Australia, no one knew what the show was. And my editor just said, oh, this is a weird show, Married at First Sight, can you write about it? And, George, I didn't want to write about it. I didn't want to watch it because I wasn't in that world and I was standing on the sidelines. It meant that you could watch it and write about it really objectively. And so that's kind of, I probably wrote something that was very cutting and then it kind of just developed into what it is now with what I do with reality TV
1: nice i love that and look i think we've tied everything together quite nicely there as well is there any shout outs you want to give and you want anyone to follow you on anything
0: sure you can follow me on social media at hello check out the website it's hellojamesweir.com
1: I'll, I'll put links down to everything in the show notes as well and obviously your new book the hands with people can go check that out thank you so much for being on the show james it was a lot of fun
0: beautiful thanks so much for the thoughtful questions george
1: <laughs> no worries cheers <laughs>
0: Thanks for listening. If you want to help support this show and all the other shows we do here at Sans Pants Radio, then why not subscribe to SansPantsPlus.com. For as little as $5 a month, you can have access to a whole bunch of bonus shows and content. Once again, that's SansPantsPlus.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo
1: from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince.